featured occasional injections of ruin in the window all roughed up. Fire panels, political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Mia Tormina, infectious disease specialist at DuPage Medical Group in the Chicagoland area, and Dr. Amash Ardala, who will be joining us as the senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health and Security, and he will join us in hour number two. Our phone lines are open at one 800 723 That's 1-800-723-8289. And again, uh, uh, that's uh, very important tonight because we have, uh, we're have we blessed with two great guests. We have great knowledge of the subject of infectious disease. We're going to be talking about uh, COVID-19. And uh, also, uh, we're going to be, we will not be talking, however, about the political aspect of it. We will only be talking about the scientific and medical aspects. So again, uh, no debate between wearing masks and not wearing masks as uh, we begin our discussion. Uh, the most recent news about COVID-19, and you may have read about this or heard about this uh, uh, on the news today, as uh, Frankie's gonna turn our music down so that we don't think it's a dance show. Uh, 150,000 new cases have popped up in the last uh, seven days. And that's a 1,000% that's a increase in COVID cases since the end of June. Children now make up 18% of the new cases. That's one of the major spikes. And the FDA is said to, to give full support, preparing full support and full approval of the Pfizer vaccine as early as tomorrow. A lot of people have used that as their excuse why not to have uh, a, a, a vaccination. And again, that's going to be at least one thing to check off their list if they are concerned about it. Uh, Mia Tormino joins us in studio. Nice to have you with us. We'll be joined by our doctor from uh, Johns Hopkins in hour number two. But Mia, thank you very much for being with us. And you, let's just explain at the beginning. You are not a medical doctor, but you are a doctor of? I'm doctor of osteopathic medicine, so I have a DO credentials. And also, uh, there's one. Other, what's the other thing in front of your name or after your name? So it's uh, I'm a fellow in the American College of Osteopathic. Can you, uh, Frankie, turn her up a little bit, okay? We're getting a real bad sound here, uh, and I want to make sure that everybody, Mia Termino, has come all the way from Elmhurst, Illinois, to Elk Grove Village, which actually isn't a long trip, but we want to make sure. Okay, uh, go on, please, with the, the fellow sure. introductions. So I, I, in addition to being a DO, I'm a fellow in the American College of Osteopathic Internists, uh, which mm -hmm. basically means that I've had additional time spent dedicated to the osteopathic profession over the years. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, in your view, uh, what is causing the increased cases in COVID now? So the main reason why we're seeing this fourth wave of COVID cases is because of the, the spread of the Delta variant. Essentially, we've made this variant become something that is primed to be more contagious and has a much higher viral load. So exposures among people, especially who are unvaccinated or not yet able to be vaccinated, is leading to more and more case counts much higher and much faster in the growth than we had seen previously. Mm -hmm. And where did this come from, the new variant? So this, there are many, many variants of COVID and this, this entire uh, viral sequence is 30,000 base okay. pairs long. So, so when you refer to Delta, it's more than just one strain? 
so the Delta variant, there are actual multiple, uh, many strains okay. of the Delta variant, but Delta is one of many other variants as well. We've seen different surges with different variants mm. over time. The original Wuhan variant, the Alpha variant, which dominated from the United Kingdom, and this one originated in India. So it was previously known as the uh, Indian variant, and it basically has a hybrid between a couple of different types of variants that we had seen before, and now it's completely overtaken all of the COVID in the United States. More than 95 case, 95% of cases nationwide are Delta currently. And how did it get from there to here? We have a globalized world. Uh, yeah. People travel from one point to the next, so it's not surprising that a variant that springs up in any part of the world will eventually make it to the U.S. and if it's something that's more contagious and has a higher viral load, it's likely to slowly but surely become the dominant strain. Yeah. Because in the early days when it was first reported uh, that it had popped its ugly head up in, in India, there were catastrophic stories and the, and the video that was coming out of uh, India uh, looked like it was absolutely one of the great disasters of the world. Did they, what did they do to to remediate and deal with the initial flood of, of their, uh, the variant in their country. You know, essentially what happens when you have these tremendous surges is the most vulnerable are going to get hit hardest. So in the United States, we have had the opportunity for several waves to have occurred and sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, a lot of our most vulnerable patients already experienced this and many didn't survive. We saw firsthand no checks and balances in what can happen in India when it was catastrophic, where the, a tremendous amount of the population was so vulnerable and essentially what brought this down in addition to layered mitigation strategies is many deaths uh, you know all of the folks that were most yep. vulnerable they didn't survive it and then that left those who survived it having some antibodies in order to try and boost the immunity pool and how effective are the vaccines the current vaccines that we're aware of how effective have they been at dealing with covid19 and the various variants so uh, and, and is one more successful than the other? Presently, we have three vaccines licensed in the United States, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, and the Moderna vaccine. All three of these vaccines are very good at preventing severe COVID, hospitalizations, and death due to COVID. Not all vaccines are going to be 100%. And indeed, there are breakthrough cases we're seeing with all three of these, mostly in individuals who are elderly, or immunocompromised, have other significant health issues. Statistically and data-wise, there's perhaps a little more benefit to the Moderna vaccine than the other two. And both messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, appear to be handling Delta a bit better than Johnson & Johnson. Mm -hmm. But again, the vast majority of folks that are in the hospitals currently are unvaccinated. Now, the original, or as I remember it, the original sort of promise or suggestion uh, with at least the first two, uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer, was that they were like 95 percent uh, after all of these months now, is 95% down considerably? There is definitely a downtick. We are seeing, uh, you know, again, in preventing severe hospitalization and death, we are seeing a tremendous benefit from all three. In stopping all-cause COVID, even the minor illnesses or asymptomatic illnesses, depending on studies, it could be 30, 40, 50%, which is sounds like, oh gosh, it's only half as effective. But in reality, having a 50% efficacy in preventing all-cause disease, if it gets that high, is a tremendous impact in order to prevent you from being 
able to get that disease, being able to pass it on to someone who's more vulnerable. So again, very much a benefit to getting vaccinated with any available vaccine. Is it true that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine had a negative impact on women more than men? So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as it made it through its trial stages and when it was first released in March, soon afterward we started seeing some cases of very unusual blood clotting, and that primarily occurred in women. The fact that the FDA swooped in immediately to create a pause to really thoroughly investigate that just shows how serious we're really trying to be about making sure we have safe and effective vaccines. Mm -hmm. So, yes, some women are affected by this. It, women who are prone to blood clotting may want to speak with their physicians. Okay. Our telephone number is 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289. We have an expert on infectious diseases and specific uh, COVID and Delta. Give us a call this evening. 1-800-723-8289. I'm Bruce Dumont. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. 1-800-723-8289, in case you've just tuned in. We are talking with uh, Mia Tormino, and she is uh, with the DuPage Medical Group in the Chicagoland area, and we're talking about uh, COVID-19. And uh, the next question I would have is getting into the uh, uh, the whole issue of uh, uh where new vaccines might be coming from are, are we or are we when i say we i mean is the medical community at least in the united states are they satisfied with the three vaccines that are currently operational currently we have three very good vaccines in the united states uh, we do have the ability to add on potentially the astrazeneca vaccine the novavax and there are several others that are licensed throughout the country and uh, or throughout the world at present um, right now we have plenty of vaccine to go around. That's why we're having these conversations about booster dosing. So I don't think it's of crucial need for us to get more options on the market. Although I do feel additional products with additional mechanisms may uh, be more receptive to certain parts of uh, the United States that are still leery about getting the vaccines that are available. Do you think that the reservation that many people have, the hesitancy, that the fact that the FDA had not signified that this was good, you know, it was 100% go, that it was only available on an emergency basis. Uh, is that one of the reasons why the reaction has not been as positive as we would like it to be? I mean, is there some, is there something real about the, that, that element of hesitancy? I think there's two parts to this. I think um, the American public was all thrust into this whole new landscape of learning about how vaccine science works. And, you know, essentially emergency use authorization exists because when we have something that is better than what we have in existence, and the only option and the best option is to use what we have when it's deemed safe enough for emergency use, we go that route. Uh, we would barely hesitate to use a life-saving cancer medication if it was an emergency use or investigational mm -hmm. trial to save someone's life. This is an emergency use as well because the alternative was nothing and we needed to have something out there. These all met some pretty uh, significant safety uh, standards in order to be granted emergency use authorization. The second issue is the fact that messenger RNA technology is just so new, and these are the first vaccines to come to market using that technology, which led to uh, opportunities for a lot of uh, concern about a new technology reaching the market so quickly. In your opinion, is it the unvaccinated that is almost the exclusive problem at the moment? We are seeing breakthrough cases, but if, for example, I was just speaking with a colleague earlier, I presently have around 19 coronavirus positive patients in the hospital with only two or three of them that are fully vaccinated. The vast majority of folks that we are seeing needing help in the hospital and having a much more prolonged course in the hospital are unvaccinated individuals. And uh, what, um, what this is some, somewhat of a political question, what prompted uh, the Biden administration to call for booster shots after 80 days after they've had the final original vaccine shot? What caused them to do that now? 
So we've reached a point where we've essentially plateaued and in new individuals getting vaccinated. Even though at present high transmission is widespread across the entire country, we need to get more vaccinated people into the population in order to get to the point where we are truly over this pandemic. To that extent, the more people we have that are unvaccinated getting sick, it's going to overwhelm the antibody protection in those of us that are fully vaccinated, starting with statistically, those who were vaccinated longest ago, us healthcare workers, elderly folks, nursing home patients that were vaccinated back in mm -hmm. December and January, Earlier. and those who are immunocompromised who may not have had as robust of an immune response. So beginning with the most severely immunocompromised and getting them a booster dose to sort of fill up that cup with antibody to raise that defense against Delta, and then rolling it down, beginning with the people that have had the vaccines the longest ago, who are most likely to have had their antibody levels drop, and then so on from there. I don't know that everyone's gonna need boosters all the time, but we've reached a point where we just wanna stop any possible person from getting sick mm -hmm. from this virus. Do you think that uh, the government, and I'm not, I'm not putting either administration uh, under the focus with this question, because I, I want a broader public health response. Um, has, have the collective communications of government and agencies of government have they been efficient and effective in communicating a very important public health message? Or have they said certain things, maybe inadvertently, that has led to the hesitancy that's out there from some Americans? Absolutely. Um, you know, and again, this isn't a political virus. It's attacking everybody everywhere. And part mm -hmm. of the problem is there's been so much pivoting on the national, state level, local level health departments, entities like the CDC, where we really are looking for concrete guidance and delivered us in a way that feels very researched and very thorough. And unfortunately, this is a plane that we are building as we're flying it. So there has been the necessity for lots of pivoting as more information is had. So the analogy when someone potentially, even myself back in March of 2020, was saying for most people, we don't need to be in masks. But what happened is the science sort of changed and then we changed our opinions on that. And that leads to distrust when it seems like something we just said a few weeks ago is now completely changed a couple of weeks later. And it's not because we've changed our mind, it's because we are constantly getting more information about the behavior of this virus, of these variants, and we've asked for patience through this entire process as we're trying to optimize the best practice moving forward. Um, should government have collectively said early on, and at the various points of this evolution of this disease, that that very frank message, you know what, we're credentialed, we know what we're doing, but what we're telling you this Monday may not be effective a week from Monday because we will be smarter because we have more evidence, as opposed to the official, the officialdom of government saying, don't wear, or masks aren't important. As Dr. Fauci initially said, they weren't important. Uh, and he has explained that he said that because he didn't want to run on masks because he wanted the medical community to get their take first. I mean, I think the American people could have understood that rather simple message, but he chose to ignore it. And, and thus, I mean, I can't tell you how many times in the last couple of months that quote from Dr. Fauci is, has been rammed down his throat, I mean, umpteen times. Sure. 
you know, it, it's it, we've been playing Monday morning quarterback through this entire pandemic. And I look back at things that I said and things that I did, even the way we've treated and managed patients has changed so dramatically. Some of the things that we were doing in the very beginning, we just don't do it all right now because we've gotten better at it. We've learned more. And it becomes difficult when you are a high profile individual saying the best information that you have and trying to be politically correct perhaps and it just backfiring on you like that. There was a point in this pandemic where I was given an N95 mask and, and simply asked to make it last a month. Regular masks that were uh, just a, a paper mask that are now thankfully plentiful, I was encouraged to use those for a week or more. Um, we did have some critical limitations in supplies, but that didn't last for a long time. And very quickly mm -hmm. afterward, I think we could have potentially moved towards um, again, calling a spade a spade and indicating that the science has changed and one of the mitigation strategies we have that may be beneficial may be to consider masking on a more broad stage. Do you think making a mask mandatory at this moment in time, will it help the cause? Will it hurt the cause as it relates to that, that core audience uh, who, who are really feeding the, the hesitancy problem? Sure. You know, we're, we've reached a point where there is that element of personal choice and we want to be able to be all of us want to be mask free uh, I have a daughter who's seven in elementary school we want these kids to be mask free and have a normal school day we just haven't earned that right yet because we are still in this widespread high transmission with a variant that is more contagious and is causing a ramp up in hospitalizations I hope we can see that turned down the best way to get that to turn down is to be vaccinated and if you still do not want to be vaccinated mask wearing is going to be crucial because you as an unvaccinated individual become the more likely person to be spreading mm -hmm. this virus. Mm -hmm. And uh, as you look at uh, the debates that are going on, I, I would assume then that you support the concept of having students who are going back to school uh, in weeks or days or already back, uh, both the teachers and the students should be masked and vaccinated. If you're eligible for vaccine, that would definitely be ideal. I think all teachers really should strongly consider being vaccinated for their own safety, for the ability to be present for their kids. I did not necessarily want it to be this way, but at this moment, I am in full support of masking across the board, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, until we can get some downturn in these numbers. I don't want this to be a permanent thing. I don't want this to be a long lasting thing. But at the moment, it's one issue about keeping the kids safe in terms of disease, but it's another issue that unmasked kids removes that layer of mitigation that results in multiple quarantines. And every quarantine could be a 10 to 14 day period of time a child has to sit out with asynchronous learning and that might not serve them well. So with the goal of butts and seats, the best thing we can do is have layered mitigation and of the layers, ventilation, hand washing, social distancing, masking, masking is probably the best of them. Are you surprised at the level of uh, irritation that this causes many parents? No, I, I, we're all frustrated. This is, we're at our wits end in a lot of ways. In healthcare we are, parents are, um, teachers are, everybody is very frustrated. I'm a bit surprised at the um, uh, ability to place one's 
desire above literally every public health entity at this moment in time. There's really no major entity that's saying it's reasonable for kids to be completely maskless if they're unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. If we reach a point where everyone is eligible for vaccine, mm -hmm. then at least that choice exists. That conversation mm -hmm. point with when is this going to be like the flu? Well, presently we can vaccinate anyone we want to for the flu. Okay. If we can vaccinate anyone we want to for coronavirus, that might give us a little bit more. Back shortly with uh, Mia Tromino, 1-800-723-8289, your opportunity. Hop on the line. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council.
Bruce Dumont back, 1-800-723-8289. Mia Tormino joins us from the DuPage Medical Group. And uh, we have Marty on the line. He is calling from Skokie, Illinois. Marty, go ahead. You're on the air. Hello. Guy. Go ahead. Hello, Bruce. Yes. Bruce, can you hear me? I can, yes. Go ahead. I'm an old guy. I, I uh, As soon as it was possible to get vaccinated, I did, and I got my second vaccination, and as soon as I can get a third one, I'm going to do that. But I have a problem with the notion of masks for children. Uh, you're, you, uh, one of your guests, I think, is going to be uh, from Johns Hopkins, and one of her uh, 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 co-workers, Dr. Marty McCary, recently wrote in the Wall Street Journal, Public health officials claim to base their decisions and guidance on science, but there's no science behind mask mandates for children. And so I'd ask uh, Dr. Mia, I forget your last name. Can can you name a single RCT, random controlled uh, test, that says masks are important for children? Because basically what you're looking at with with the general mask that people use today it's a paper mask that, that doesn't do anything about, uh, about aerosols. It might stop a few uh, uh, projectiles, but aerosols are simply unaffected by it. And aerosols are where, I, you know, I've heard numbers up to 85% of, of all transmission is through aerosols. So why is, is, are people saying, or why are, the, why are these uh, scientists or these uh, uh, authorities saying we've got to wear masks? Okay. When let's, there is let's, let, let's, no right, science. Marty, stand by. You made your point a couple of times, which is good. Mia's going to respond, and then we'll give a, go back to you for a final word. Go ahead, Mia. Well, Marty, you're absolutely correct. There, there are no randomized controlled trials that are going to show the concrete benefit of masking in children, using children as data points. There's certainly lab-created studies and things like that. And you're absolutely right. These littlest kids especially, when we're talking about kids under the age of five, and as you're well aware, kids age two and up are being encouraged to wear masks presently. They, they would have to wear masks absolutely perfectly, and they would need to be wearing them the majority of the time. The fortunate reality is, is as we get up in age and get to those elementary kids on up through middle and high school, uh, there is a little more knowledge as to making sure that mask is, is more properly fitting over the nose, under the chin, and not gapped and not pulled down. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for a layer of mitigation the majority of the time. And again, you are correct. This virus doesn't exist in individual particles, and these masks are certainly not going to stop individual viruses. And aerosols are very small as well. But to the extent that a large amount of virus is carried in droplets, yes, the masks will act as a barrier uh, to stop that that projection of a large volume of, of large droplets. So masks alone, potentially up for debate, but having those layers of mitigation, masking with the distancing, with the hand washing, with proper ventilation, is going to, at this moment in time, statistically provide us a, a safer environment in our indoor spaces with kids. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Go ahead, Marty. Go back. No, go on. No, my, my question to you is, uh, you volunteered at the beginning of your conversation that you went out and, and you, did the, you were the good soldier, you got your vaccines, you waited in line, you got, you got them. Um, is that the way you would normally act to a recommendation by the government? I, I, I want to know, where would you put yourself in the large population in America that questions anything that government says? Well, or most of what they say. Yeah, I would say 
Uh, I generally believe the government, but but I really, really distrust the government, distrust them when they say we're acting on the science. We believe in the science. Science is what counts. This is there is no science. There is not a single bit of randomized controlled testing that says masks do any good for children. And and if if there was if, if you could believe that masks did no harm to children, well, then who couldn't hurt to try a mask? But mask, I mean, when you think of a seven or an eight-year-old kid, that child needs to be able to see the face of his or her friends. That, uh, and when the kid gets to be 12 or 13, that child needs to be able to, you know, a 12-year-old girl has to be able to see a 12-year-old boy's face. Because okay. because w- when they become 18 and 20 years old, they'll need to kind of understand each other. And if you're wearing a mask, it's a terrible, terrible okay. limitation stay, on your ability to understand people. St- stay on the line because you've, you've opened another line of inquiry and based on your opinions here. But again, uh, there has been a lot said in the past about the social disconnect of students who are not going to school, they're, they're distance learning. So let me expand this discussion uh, with Dr. Tremino and ask her about some of the social aspects of uh, mask wearing and, and the, the long-term effects that it might have on a, on a youngster. So Marty, I really appreciate that you've brought this topic up and, and I'm speaking from that mother experience as well as the mother of a seven-year-old who now is having her third school year, kindergarten, first and now second grade, impacted in some way by this virus and, and in some way by wearing a mask uh, as much as she's had to. Um, and I can certainly appreciate the parents that are very concerned with uh, speech delays and the, necess- the necessity of their child to be able to interact and see facial expressions. But I also maintain that these kids need to be in class. And until we have a conversation really uh, investigating the need for and the duration of these quarantines, part of the issue is that that masking does help to pause the quarantines. If you have kids that are closely interacting with one another and a masked individual ends up testing positive, the chances of that masked individual passing a meaningful amount of virus to another masked individual, even when less than six feet is there, becomes dramatically less. So we are then allowed to keep the masked exposed individuals in class. So I would argue for myself and many other mothers that I've spoken with that the importance of the social aspect of being in-person learning is so crucial that if this hopefully just a few months longer of mask wearing is what is necessary to get us to that ends, I'm going to be in favor of it. Why is it taken uh, government, whether at the federal level or the state levels, to be to have such a disconnect with one another about just the importance of going to school. Forget the masks. I mean, just going to school, because it seems to me that the case for going to school and that an in-class student was a far better educated student than one that was doing it via computer at home. Why was there so much debate and discussion about that point between, that's when it became really political. It still is political. It still is, for sure. If we can go back and look at how we unraveled all of last year, when my daughter was in kindergarten in March of 2020, we definitely reached that point when we did that whole two weeks to flatten the curve. 
I was sounding the alarm and stating we need to start talking about the fall because these kids aren't going to be able to start school. And really no one was listening. Everyone just sort of thought it would fizzle out or go away in the summertime, mm -hmm. and it did not. Then we went through all of last year, and here we are into the fall of 2021, where we still arguably should have had a better plan ready to go. Looking back on last year, I've said from the get-go, these kids, in my opinion, likely could have been in school most of the time with layered mitigation strategies in place. And with those mitigation strategies in place, quarantines were not nearly needed to the extent that they were imposed. We had thousands of students have to quarantine in every district for very few cases that were transmitted in the school setting. Cases are not being transmitted in the school setting with layered mitigations in place to any meaningful extent. We're not having those large-scale outbreaks. So I, I believe that we need to prioritize the education of our children and when and if we encounter a massive surge again or the next big virus, the last thing that closes down should be the schools, not the first thing. Mm -hmm. Now also, uh, in, in some states, including Illinois, where this program originates, our governor, J.B. Pritzker, divided the state into, I think, 11 or 12 regions. And again, there would be daily reports as to what was happening in a particular region. When you have things that, are, that can be measured in that degree of specificity, um, is it a mistake to dictate uh, or mandate uh, a, a statewide solution? Should, is it realistically to go back to the way it was, and that is to decide that you know people in rural Illinois are going to be, uh, they're going to be their public health is going to be different than in uh, Chicago or the collar counties. So that is a tough uh, statement. You know, right now where we're seeing the biggest issues with the case counts going up are in the more rural areas, but make no mistake, every single county in Illinois presently is at high transmission. And that's the highest level we get to. And we need to sustain into that moderate or low level in order to start to roll back some of these mitigation measures. So I don't necessarily think it's a mistake per se. I, I think that it was definitely not a politically favorable move for Pritzker to make or to have to make, but we did reach a point where there was so much controversy over who was saying mask optional and who was saying mask required that I do appreciate to some extent at the time being some level guidance that again went out of the districts and back to the state level. At some point we've got to turn this back to the district level because county by county those numbers can be dramatically different. Marty, thank you for your call. We'll take another call in just a moment, but I do want to ask uh, the issue about uh, uh, ICU beds. Uh, one of the early real blockbuster aspects of this was the loss of ICU beds in major states and cities all over the country. Did we learn anything from that process, and I would say somewhat of a medical debacle, did we learn anything then that can protect us now? I think we did. I think that the process that we went through, Bruce, was we established field hospitals within our hospitals. We used alternative spaces like I've never seen before. Emergency room wings that had long gone by the wayside were being converted to mm -hmm. ICU places. Since we weren't doing elective surgeries, those operating rooms became intensive care rooms because they had ventilators in them. And I think because of that, if and when the next big thing happens, statistically it will at some point, hopefully not in my lifetime, we should be able to flip that switch. We'll be back shortly. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. 
That's why we created My Social Security. A My Social Security account allows you to access your earnings history and benefits information, request a replacement Social Security card, get a proof of income letter, estimate and apply for benefits, and more. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Is that a faucet running? That's not a faucet. That's a river rushing through the forest. Forest rivers provide over 100 million people with clean water to drink. What? I can't hear you because of the vacuum. That's not a vacuum. That's the trees in the forest cleaning up the air we breathe. I didn't know the trees were so amazing. Yep, and the forest gives us shade, trees to climb. That's awesome. Let's go explore some more. Visit the forest today and enjoy all it does just for you. To learn more about the forest and find one near you, go to discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, in the next hour, we're going to be joined by Dr. Amish Ajala. He is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. He will join our discussion with Dr. Mia Tormino here in Chicago. We do have a caller on the line. Tom is calling us from WPIC in the great state of Pennsylvania. Go ahead. Good evening, Bruce, and to your guest. Uh, three quick comments related to how this, you know, I think could have been improved yeah. next time. Mm-hmm. And then a question about the booster shop. I, I, Dr. Tremino, I really think they should have had somebody like yourself out front of this rather than Dr. Fauci. You explain everything very well. 
Amen. Secondly, I think they needed honest statistics, which they were not getting because of the monies that were being offered. In other words, if somebody was dying with COVID rather than of COVID, then you know there there was additional monies there if they were being treated uh, with COVID. Uh, there was additional monies there, and of, you know, in terms of health care or funeral co- uh, co- charges, and I really think that that had a negative effect. And also, they censored honest debate on this, such as with the hydroxychloroquine. So I think those things could be improved in the future. My question about the booster shot. Now, I'm hearing about Pfizer and Moderna getting booster shots. I had the J&J. Um, Will I be getting a booster shot when, and what's the difference between the booster shot, if any, uh, and the original shot? In other words, could you just get a second original shot? So that's a great question, and the answer is yes, you will likely uh, be a candidate for a booster shot. Uh, Presently, we're looking at that same timeline, around eight months after your J&J, getting another dose of the J&J vaccine. So the J&J vaccine first went out in March, so we're looking at November for the earliest boosters for J&J recipients. The question I receive constantly is, can a J&J recipient go ahead and get a messenger RNA booster, uh, a Pfizer shot or a Moderna shot? At present, we are not having that indication set, and we're really trying to operate within the auspices of what is uh, indicated by the FDA. That being said, starting tomorrow, we should have FDA approval for Pfizer, and then Moderna will probably be close to follow. And that gives us as physicians some flexibility to use these vaccines off-label. So that would be a conversation point for your physician if you would be a candidate for potentially off-label use of mixing and matching of vaccines. But at present, the timeline for most will be a second Johnson & Johnson shot, uh, and it would be the exact same shot you already received with the idea of simply boosting the amount of antibodies that you have from your first dose that may be waning over time. Does that answer your question? No, that's all. An excellent program, Bruce. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Joel. We've got a a great guest this evening. Uh, A question uh, about... uh, about when you learn studies. Obviously, when, when something like COVID-19 is, is being thrust on the American people, uh, you're getting new information. When I mean you, I mean as a doctor, you're getting new information. And the media is providing information to a broader uh, group of people. But h- how do you know, as a, as a hardworking doctor with patients uh, working in DuPage, Illinois, DuPage County, Illinois, how do you keep up with all of the information that is passing amongst every other medical professional in the United States or the world. How do you keep up? You know, Bruce, I, I have kind of joked sort of tongue-in-cheek that I this is what I was trained to do. And I'm, I'm still fairly young in my field, and yet I'm about 13 years into doing infection medicine at this point. Mm-hmm. I find it to be incredibly interesting. I find the science behind it to be interesting. but. Looking back on the last year and a half, I can't even begin to approximate the number of hours spent just combing through every available bit of science that's coming out on a daily basis and trying to stay on top of things so I can continue to give my patients a standard of care, spread the news of the most up-to-date sciences, make no excuses about pivoting when we have to pivot on different treatment strategies or different recommendations, but it's not easy to do, which is why I still educate on a daily basis my own peers on what the newest and best strategies are, Mm -hmm. uh, because it is a constantly moving science. Because uh, politics has reared its ugly head over in this issue, um, are there certain um, organizations, hospitals, 
doctors, groups of doctors, that when they say something, obviously it's well regarded, whereas if someone else says it who is maybe less credentialed, they're viewed as uh, as an outlier or someone that just can't be trusted or doesn't have the credentials like you have or or someone else uh, of your of your stature. And how do you how do you deal with that? Because not I mean not all smart not all smart people are doctors and not all doctors are smart people, right? Totally understand. Okay. It's it's you have to sort of look again at the the background and longevity of the doctor working and advocating within the space they're speaking about, and also looking at some of these individuals that are are potentially looking to uh, find their fifteen minutes of fame. I, along this entire process, kind of kept my ears open to all of the above for a couple of reasons. One, because even certain treatment protocols or certain strategies that were proposed by a group or an entity that ultimately flopped, I needed to pay attention to that to see either why it flopped, why it worked, why we're going to use it, why we're not going to use it, and I needed to have the best possible answers for my patients when they questioned their treatment strategies or questioned their approach so I could kind of stay abreast as, as to all of this. Mm -hmm. I've in general looked towards my trainers, my colleagues, folks that I have respected throughout my training and out my years in Detroit, and then they who they look towards, and it kind of spirals from there. So we really start to know some of the names and some of the people mm. to truly trust in this. Yeah. And it's very difficult when we live in such a, a media-centric world, whether we're uh, watching certain cable channels or, or listening to, to talk radio. I mean, uh, we, we live and breathe on callers. Uh, they are calling in with either prejudices or non-prejudice. Their, their stories are anecdotal, but there may be, they may be, have some validity to them. And again, uh, as, a, as a professional communicator, it becomes very difficult on, on uh, you know, you don't want to brand everyone a crackpot pot, you don't necessarily want to come across as a mouthpiece for the CDC when the CDC has said and done some things, like we talked with Dr. Fauci earlier, that they were wrong on or they didn't, they didn't communicate well. Yeah. And their problem is they don't communicate well. And again, if you're in the communication field, it, it can become a, a, a great challenge, which is why I really appreciate your being face-to-face -face with me across the table tonight. When we come back, we're going to be doing, uh, joined by a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins uh, University, and uh, we will continue our discussion. We've got callers on the line. We will take more wall-to-wall -wall calls in hour number two. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, I'll tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with our number two of Beyond the Beltway this evening. Thank you very much for joining us. We're talking about COVID-19 and the variances, uh, specifically Delta. And we've got uh, two great guests. One has been with us in the first hour. She continues. She is Dr. Mia Tormina. And she is an infectious disease specialist, and she is with DuPage Medical Group, and that's the Edward Elmhurst Health Center. And also, we are now joined uh, from his home, uh, Dr. Amish Ajalia, and he is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And Dr. Ajala, thank you very much for joining us this evening. I'd like. Thanks to, for having me. I'd like it's actually Amish adult. Amish, I'm sorry. Let let me begin, doctor, by asking you to sort of follow up on a question that was asked in the first hour of the program. Uh, with all the information that goes on within the medical community, and and some of it makes it to a network newscast. Um, as a professional in the field. Uh, how do you deal with the daily influx of information that passes through your desk and through your brain? How, how do you know what to separate uh, the good from the bad and uh, the worth pursuing from not pursuing? It's very hard during the midst of a pandemic to, to really be able to... Go ahead. Go ahead, we've lost you. It's it's really important to look at different levels of information, looking at where they're coming from. Mm -hmm.
your your audio is coming in and coming out. Uh, do we know what the story is, Frankie? Just c keep talking, uh, Doctor, and uh, we will hopefully pick up on your words. What it is is that you have to find trusted sources of information, and that may include medical journals, science journalists that you kind of follow, and you're trying to, to you also have to marry that with what you know about the infectious disease that you're talking about. So if you're talking about COVID, what do you already know about it? What are you seeing in, in the real world? And then you try and integrate that with what you're seeing when it comes to journal articles, newspaper articles, trying to understand, you know, does this make biological sense? Is this something that that's valid, something that's that's already been proven, or is this something that needs a lot more work? And it's very difficult because there's so many strands of information during a pandemic. What, what is the biggest misconception about COVID-19 or the treatment of COVID-19 that you think is out there in the, the public sector at the moment? The biggest misconception, I think, is not realizing that this is sort of the new normal, that COVID-19 is a, a respiratory virus that spreads efficiently, that it has an animal host, and it's not going away. It's not going to magically disappear. And we have to find a way to be able to sustainably live with this virus, removing its ability to crush hospitals on the one hand, but finding a way to teach people how to risk calculate. There are many people who think that the post-pandemic world is going to be like 2019. It's not. And I think we've got to dispel people of that notion or we're never going to make progress against this virus. Describe what that might be like. Well, what it means is that 10 years from now or five years from now, there's still going to be COVID-19 cases. But those cases are largely going to be decoupled from hospitalizations and deaths because so many high-risk people will have developed immunity, primarily through vaccination and some through natural infection, that we deal with it more like other respiratory viruses that we have year in and year out, like influenza, like RSV. That's, that's what we're trying to do, tame the virus, remove its ability to, to, to really cause such an acceleration in cases that our hospitals go, go into crisis. And I think we're getting there with the vaccine, but, but that, that's a, something that's going to have to be understood is that there's gonna be a baseline number of cases, hospitalizations and deaths of COVID-19 for some time going forward. The goal is to just make it much more manageable and, and not be the crisis that it is today. Uh, Dr. Mia Tormio joins me in studio here. She is with the, uh, the DuPage uh, Medical Group. And uh, Dr. would you elaborate on, on what Dr. Amish uh, Jonah just had to say? Yeah, just like what you were saying, uh, Dr. Adelja, there's, I completely agree with the fact that this is not going anywhere. This is not smallpox. This is something that is not going to be eradicated. I definitely think we all want, so desperately, those of us on the front lines, to get to the point where this is a seasonal thing or where we have breakthrough cases in, in individuals uh, over the years that are at most susceptible. But I agree that the key to this is getting to if we want to use the word herd immunity, we can use the word herd immunity, but getting to a point where the uh, the pace of vaccines outpaces the variants that we are seeing so we aren't to the point of crisis, just as you said, where we are completely exhausted and our, um, not that our supplies are, are limited, our supplies are fairly robust. It's just the exhaustion of the healthcare providers and the nurses and the physicians that have been dealing this with, with this for a year and a half. What is meant by herd immunity, uh, Dr. Ajala? Herd immunity is a level of 
immunity that you find in a population that makes it very difficult for the virus to find new people to infect. So when you talk about measles, for example, we often talk about herd immunity there where 90% plus are vaccinated. So the virus can't find new people to infect. It just becomes so hard because whatever person the virus encounters has immunity. And, and that level is different depending upon what organism you're talking about. So for measles, which is probably the most contagious disease known to humans, it's very high. For COVID-19, it, it is relatively high, probably 80% plus, especially with the Delta variant. But to me, uh, I, I think herd immunity is an important goal to strive for. But I, even if we don't reach herd immunity because of variants, because of people not wanting to be vaccinated, I think that being able to get our high-risk population protected is the most important thing. Because COVID-19, what it does is has a different impact on people depending upon their age and their risk factors. So if we can get our high-risk population vaccinated, that really will, will make COVID such a, a different issue. So if you look at some of the North, Northeast states, we've got a lot of high-risk people vaccinated. So for example, people above the age of 65, and you're seeing cases and you're seeing some uptick in hospitalizations, but you're not seeing hospitals go into crisis. And that's because the there we've reached kind of herd immunity in those special populations that are at highest risk for hospitalizations. And I think that's a worthy goal in and of itself, even if we don't reach official herd immunity in the population, which I think is going to be very hard with vaccine hesitant people with more contagious variants and the fact that children under the age of 12 are not eligible to be vaccinated. Is that why we're seeing a, a diversion in some statistics or a focus on it in in Florida and Louisiana are sort of their outlier states insofar as they do seem to be having the same problem with hospital beds and respirators that we that we go back you know 18 months on. Exactly. So what's happened in, in places like Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, Texas, Georgia, uh, where you're seeing the, those eight, there's about eight states that comprise about 50% of our hospitalizations, is not enough high-risk people are vaccinated. And that's what's causing these hospitalizations to increase. And there you have to remember, it's not just age, because they do have high vaccination rates in people above the age of 65. Mm -hmm. But there are people that maybe are 45 and have diabetes or obesity or asthma who think that they're not going to get a, a severe case because they're young. Younger. That's just not that's not true. And that's actually what's populating the hospitals in those places where they're worried about capacity again. And what's different this time is that we have a, these are all, that we have a solution. These are all preventable infections. These are all preventable deaths that we're having right now. If we would just get vaccine into those people that are at high risk for hospitalization. And I think that has to be what we double down on as we move into this in, in this new phase of the pandemic. Okay, we have to pause. 1-800-723-8029. We will continue with our discussion focused this evening on COVID. Don't go away. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive. But our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You yes, may not have good. heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. 
Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back uh, in our number one, uh, Doctor. We had quite a discussion about uh, masks in schools. So I want to get your uh, opinion. This is Dr. Uh, uh, Adalia, and he is with Johns Hopkins. He's a senior scholar there. Um, give us your opinion on the wisdom of masks in schools and whether or not they should be mandatory. And add, that, add to that uh, your thoughts on the importance of getting vaccinations from uh, younger Americans, not just uh, those who are adults. So when it comes to schools, I think there's a couple of things. The, the first, the priority has to be in-person schooling. We know that children suffered a lot during this pandemic because of the disruption in in-person schooling. And we know how to do it safely because even in the pre-vaccine era, there were schools that could open safely with proper mitigation measures. And I think that has to be what we do during this upcoming school year. When it comes to masks, I think what you want is school districts to have flexibility. And that flexibility is gonna depend upon what percentage of their student body and their teacher body is is vaccinated, what does spread look like in the community, what is the vaccination rate in the community, and I think the overarching thing has to be to keep schools open. And if you're in a place where you've got a lot of unvaccinated individuals, a lot of unvaccinated children, and remember children under the age of 12 can't be vaccinated yet, I do think that schools should think about masks, especially for the unvaccinated, especially with certain high-risk activities that are indoors, uh, that maybe involve singing or exercising or extracurricular activities. I think that's, that's the norm that we, we have to have 
moving forward because we can't have schools shutting down again and the vaccination rates in some communities are not high enough to be able to keep it completely at bay from the schools and there's just kind of a knee-jerk reaction to put students back on at-home learning if there's cases so we've got to keep schools open so that's why i think it has to be done at the school district by school district basis the more children that are vaccinated the better it's going to be especially children that are going to be at high risk for spreading it those that are involved in extracurricular activities so there are some schools in california that are starting to think about vaccines as entry requirements and i think that probably more will do that and i do think that's one way to make your school much more resilient is by having as many students as possible vaccinated and having the teachers vaccinated. And I do think that school districts should think about teachers being vaccinated as a condition of employment. And some of the teachers unions have endorsed this. And I think that would be another way to keep schools resilient to the, to the pandemic. Dr. Tremino, uh, these, the school districts that are, that are supposed to be making these important decisions, um, they may not all be looking at the same research that you and Dr. Ajala look at. Um, so again, I, I guess my question to them is if you've got, you know, 50 state governors giving the power to, you know, umpteen school district presidents and, and, and boards of directors all over the country, uh, you're going to find some that might be looking at medical advice and recommendations that are different than what you might recommend and Dr. Uh, Ajalia might, might recommend. So Mia, to you first, and then I want to hear from Amish as well. Go ahead. It's, it's a complicated issue for sure because there's the hierarchy of the schools looking toward the local health departments, looking toward the state, looking toward the government level, and, it, and there's sort of that trickle down, and, and no one wants to make these difficult decisions, but uh, the decisions are, are being driven by a, a significant portion of the population that wants one way or the other, and that's why we ended up with a lot of voting towards mask optional driven by parents that really want that choice, believing that they will be the end-all be all and who can determine safety for their children when the reality is this is a pandemic and your decision impacts other people. So that's where it becomes quite challenging. I think that like we spoke about in the first hour, it's crucial to look at local metrics, just like Dr. Uh, Adalja was saying that it's not just about your state. It might be at the county level. It might be at the district level. And in some large districts, it might be at the building level to see what uh, amount of people you have vaccinated, what mitigation strategies you have in place, how much distance you're able to keep between students, and whatever that model is. And I encourage all districts to speak with medical professionals for some, some guidance in these areas. We can keep students in person safely. And into this year, again, as the mother of an elementary school child, there isn't as much flexibility to just flip that switch and go on to virtual. At present, if there's quarantines, my daughter's at risk of being sent home with just some busy mm. work, essentially, and that's just right. not going to be uh, the goal. Well, we also know from noted educators that uh, this past uh, the students in America's school for the last 18 months they haven't really been educated very much and yet they're going on to college I and mean, there's an awful lot that's been lost in the in the, the loss of a school class time with a real teacher uh dr jala uh, your response to the same question i agree i think what we want to have is flexibility and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution it's really going to be driven by local dynamics with vaccination and transmission and what the school is capable of doing what resources do they have for social distancing what resources do they have for outdoors versus indoors and ventilation all that's going to be really important for how a school district runs but what we don't want to see is governors making it illegal for school districts to actually 
be safe or to take the actions that they think are necessary based on their local conditions. And I think that's the, the, the worry that I have is that in some places, school districts' hands are tied and they can't do anything, even if there's science supporting something that they may want to do. And I think that that's how we have to take this kind of as a, at a you know, almost a week by week basis to see what's going on with transmission, what's going on with vaccination. And then I think titrate what you're doing in a school based on on what you're seeing. And it's very hard, I think, to have schools operating without impact from the virus if you're in a place like Mississippi, for example. But it might be a lot easier to do that in a place like Vermont. So I think what we want to do is, is really just empower school districts, empower superintendents to actually take the science and apply it individually to their schools. And in some places, that's going to be masks. It's gonna involve masks for certain people, maybe for the unvaccinated, maybe it'll be everybody at first, then it'll be the unva- then only the unvaccinated, depending upon how that happens. And I think what you want to see is at least it's being driven by science and not being driven by politics. And I think it, it is important that we just get this right because the children have not been able to to learn, as you just said, for so long. And I think that even in-person schooling, if they've got to wear masks in certain parts of the country, I think is much better than at-home schooling. But did we, uh, we discussed in hour number one about whether or not there's any scientific evidence that suggests that masks help, are helpful. Does that exist? There's a, of course it exists. I mean, there's, pl- there's a plethora of evidence that, that masks are able to decrease transmission. You can look at where when states started to uh, institute mask recommendations mm-hmm. during the early part of this pandemic and watch how their cases fell or watch the, the rate of increase in their cases. So it, there is clear evidence and convincing evidence that masks do help decrease transmission. Masks for vaccinated people, that might be a little bit different, but for the unvaccinated individual, especially if you've got clusters of unvaccinated people, masks are going to be an important tool. They're not a substitute for the vaccine, but in lieu of the vaccine, it is one way to decrease transmission. And there is clear evidence during this pandemic that masks did decrease transmission. We didn't have that evidence at the beginning of the pandemic, but it amassed throughout the pandemic. And I think it is one tool that you have to keep on the table when you're dealing with unvaccinated populations. When when you look into your crystal ball and uh, flip the uh, rear view mirror on it, would, would you say in looking back as to how government and, and official medicine has communicated the importance and the various narratives of COVID-19, have they spent enough time scaring the hell out of people or did they spend too much time on a scare narrative? I want to get Dr. Mia Tamiro, you first and then we'll go to Dr. Amish. So, you know, the, the difficult part is that I don't, I don't love the, the idea of a scare narrative, but we've been trying to, from the very beginning, those of us who are familiar with the nature of a pandemic, I mean, I was asked very early on, how long is this going to last? Are we going to be better in a few weeks? And I said, the life expectancy of a pandemic is, could be two to three years. You know, this is something that's going to go on for a long time. So that wasn't meant to scare people. It was meant to prepare people for the reality that we are all going to see something we've never seen before. This is going to turn our lives, our livelihoods upside down. So I think when we look in the rearview mirror, all of us who have lived through this, if we have the misfortune of having to live through another global pandemic in our lifetime, we will have hopefully learned from this history or else we're going to be doomed to repeat it. We have to be prepared. And we've known we were overdue for a pandemic of this magnitude for a century. So it it was time and now we're living it and we need to learn from it. 
not trying to scare anyone. I just know that there exists the possibility of something as widespread as this with a mortality much, much higher. Dr. Adalia, same question. I, I agree. I think that I think that a scare narrative is the wrong way to put this because what what we had in the very beginning was a lot of disjointed information that wasn't quite clear. And I think looking back in a crystal ball, yes, the public health communication could have been a lot better because there were clearly things that weren't driving spread that were getting labeled as driving spread and, and vice versa. And I think it would have been much better to be able to kind of have that nuanced communication. But you have to remember that for much of the pandemic, we were flying blind because we didn't have the ability to know who was infected and who wasn't infected because our testing was so dismal uh, that, that it became very hard. And I think that governors all around the country were using very blunt tools because they were scared themselves. They didn't know. They saw what happened in New York and they were extrapolating it to their states. And we had no way to, to know who was infected, who wasn't, what was spreading infection. There were clear concerns about personal protective equipment with shortages of masks, shortages also mm -hmm. of hospital equipment. So I think that that scare, that scare narrative, if you want to call it that, really derived from the fact that we were so unprepared that we had basically done nothing for January, February, and half of March and gave a virus a major head start. And, and that's what spiraled out of control. That's what led to the mm -hmm. scare narrative. And it's very hard for people to pull back from that. I think the public health communication could be better. It could have been better in the beginning, but it's all derived from the fact that we had a massive failure of the federal government to actually respond to this pandemic when it would have mattered before the virus was already established in this country and basically had un undocumented chains of transmission all over the country that were bubbling up into hospitals. I want to talk more about that when we come back and also uh, how long it took the United States and the world to recover from the uh, 1918 uh, pandemic. Back shortly from Chicago. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. 
It's a new life. But I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with Beyond the Beltway. We've got uh, 30 minutes uh, left, and uh, we're going to let each of our guests take a moment to introduce themselves. I've given the uh, the short version of their distinguished career, and uh, we're going to begin with uh, Dr. Amesh Adalia. And forgive me for screwing up your name on a number of occasions. I hope I got it right that time, doctor. Oh, you did get it right. No, it's Amish Adalja. Amish uh, I'm Adalja. I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. I'm a board-certified infectious disease, critical care, and emergency medicine physician. I work a lot on, on the intersection of infectious disease and national security, biosecurity, pandemic preparedness, and I've been doing a lot of uh, policy work on COVID-19 since the beginning of this pandemic, as well as taking care of COVID patients as, uh, as recently as this morning. So uh, I, I think that this is something that's been a focus of my career for, for some time, especially when I speak to the public and try and explain some of these complex concepts and try to understand what it means for them in their lives and, and how to really think about pandemic preparedness going in the future. Because uh, as your other guest said, this can't be something that we let happen ever again. And this was uh, not a very high fatality rate infection. And there are much scarier things out there. And I think that the failure that we've seen here is something we have to fix. And we have a window of opportunity now to fix it because everybody's eyes are on pandemic preparedness. I want to come back to that in just a moment after uh, uh, Dr. Tromina introduces herself and your background. So I'm Dr. Mia Taramina. I am the chair of the Department of Infectious Disease at DuPage Medical Group here in suburban uh, Illinois. And I was born and raised in Detroit. I did my uh, undergrad at Albion College, went to Michigan State for medical school where I earned my Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine degree. I'm a fellow in the American College of Osteopathic Internists where I also serve as one of the co-chairs of the infectious disease subsection. I do a lot of community medicine. I do a lot of community outreach. And uh, again, it's, this is what I was trained to do. Okay. Uh, Dr. Adalia, again, back to you to elaborate on, on your introduction and your comments concerning national security and that uh, we have learned a lot of lessons in the last 18 months to 24 months and we we hope not to ever get into a situation like uh, we were in for a long period of time uh, paint a picture for us as to let's say three or four things that we as a nation should be doing to make sure this never happens again 
first thing is we really have to take a proactive approach. You cannot be able to prepare kind of as that pandemic is happening. We have to think about what can we do strategically. We know that there are certain respiratory viruses, and those are the most likely types of pathogens to be able to cause a pandemic. We know that they come from certain families. Are we ahead of time investing in medical countermeasures, things like vaccines, antivirals, diagnostic tests for broad groups of viruses that might be able to cause a pandemic? That's one thing. Another thing is you have to realize during a pandemic, what becomes your national security apparatus are your local and your local public health departments, local and state. And those have been undervalued and underfunded for decade after decade. Look at what happened during the, this pandemic with the ability to hire contact tracers, for example. They just could not do it. And I think if you don't have a resilient public health workforce, you're going to be very, very vulnerable to any type of infectious disease spiraling out of control. So we have to invest sustainably in public health because what happens is it goes through boom and bust cycles. When something is in the headlines, whether it's Ebola or H1N1 or Zika, there's funding. Uh, and then it disappears when things get out of the headline. And that kind of up and down non-sustainable funding needs to go away. And the third thing is we have to really have political leaders that are going to listen to the science, that are not going to inject politics into this on either side, whether it's the right or whether it's the left, that there, there is a scientific way to do this. There is a best practices way to handle a pandemic. And that, that involves a, a lot of um, being frank with the general public, a lot of upfront in investments and in a lot of public health communication that is not something that gets politicized. And I think if we if we start to think about that, I, I think we would be in a position to have more resilience. Of course, we also have to make sure hospitals are prepared. We have to make sure that we have enough personal protective equipment, for example, in the strategic national stock. Well, there's lots of little things, but the biggest thing is to have a proactive approach and just anticipate that this is going to happen. And we have to start thinking about it ahead of time, not waiting until we already are in the midst of, a, of an outbreak before we actually start to respond. In addition to the expertise of the medical and the scientific community, however, it does get back to political leadership, the, 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 man, the, the, the management of, of government, if you will, because if indeed our stockpile was uh, underperforming or understocked, as President Trump said it was when he took office, somebody forgot to refresh the masks, which turned out to be uh, inappropriate. The respirators were not there when they were supposed to be. These are mistakes by governments state level investment of dollars but these are mistakes that really don't have anything to do with a scientist unless there's a scientist yelling in the ear of a political leader hey don't don't let our stockpile go down to zero and that's exactly what the think tank I work at, at Johns Hopkins does, the Center for Health Security. We've been talking about the threat of pandemics, talking about the importance of having the strategic national stockpile replenished and, and augmented, but that falls on deaf ears. I think what we saw in this country was a big interest in pandemic preparedness during the, the administration of George W. Bush because of the anthrax attacks that happened in 2001, mm -hmm. where, where right. five people died and 22 people were infected. That created a lot of investment, a lot of interest. And since that time, it's basically dwindled down. Even though we had a pandemic in 2009 with the H1N1 influenza virus, many things were not replenished after that time. And we did use a lot of personal protective equipment, but it's not as if people didn't notice that. 
many people in my field have been talking about this, writing reports about this, and, and lots of those reports are kind of gathering dust in, in desktop drawers somewhere in, in Washington. It's just not something that the government really prioritized. And I think that this pandemic is an example of what happens when you're not prepared. And you can think about what, what's, so during the Trump administration, the, national, the members of the National Security Council that were focused on pandemic preparedness were removed. They were cut from there. So there was just, this is just not something that government has, has really prioritized at all and we all paid for it with 600,000 people dead and, and trillions of dollars of wealth destroyed. If we look back to 1918 and the Spanish flu of 1918, how long did it take the United States and how long did it take the world to get back on track and recover uh, in public policy and in other ways and even in personal health care? How long did it take the world and the U.S. to get back on track uh, from that. I'll let you, Dr. Amesh, I'll let you go first and then Mia. Approximately about two years, then we kind of went into the roaring 20s in the United States. And it's different with each disease and depending upon what happens. And I think with 1918, it's really important to remember the average age of death there was 27. So that's a very different type of uh, pandemic where than the one we're in now, where the average age of death is probably in the, in the 70s or high 60s. So there's a different societal impact. Also, the 1918 pandemic came on the heels of World War One, and, and that all that upheaval. I think there was a lot of societal changes that were going on at the same time as that pandemic. But it was probably about two years or so before we started to see some levels of recovery. I think we'll recover faster in the in the United in the United States now with COVID-19. I think we're more resilient in terms of our society. And, and how we deal with this. But I do think that now is this opportunity to fix this so that we do have a much stronger pandemic preparedness footing, a much better public health infrastructure than we had in the past so that when the next pandemic occurs, when the next epidemic or infectious disease emergency occurs, we are able to respond much better. Dr. Tremino? Uh, Dr. Adalja is perfectly correct. It, it, the pandemic in 1918 lasted about two years, even without vaccines, without antibiotics, without you know what we have. But far and, worse than uh, this. Far worse. Uh, 50 million people died. So, I mean, this was worldwide. A, a, a worldwide. This was a catastrophic thing to have happened when very young people died. There were stories of of young soldiers being on trains, and by the time they got to their destination, half of the train was was in in doing so poorly. Uh, they were dying left and right. Um, and then we did go into the Roaring Twenties. We had an economic boom that happened from about 1923 all the way till the Great Depression, uh, till the till the uh, um, economy t totally crashed, and we had a stock market crash. But, you know, I think that we're looking at years of recovery, not necessarily in our backyards, but looking at worldwide what's going to take years to recover. Did the politicians post-1918, the politicians and the scientists, did, did they give any focus on analyzing an after-action report then, or was it such a, a horrible experience that politically no one wanted to go out and spend more time talking about something. They wanted that in the rear view mirror. Do you know the answer to that, Dr. Julia? I know some aspects of it. So you have to remember in 1918, they didn't even know that influenza was caused by a virus. The virus hadn't been discovered, uh, wasn't discovered until the 1930s. They had no antivirals. This was before uh, penicillin. They had, no, they had no modern ICUs. So pandemics and infectious diseases killing people was something that was somewhat more expected back then and much more, and much more part of the day-to-day -day life. 
because we didn't have measles vaccine. We didn't have any of that stuff at that time. But there definitely were uh, reports written about which cities use masks, which ones didn't use masks, which ones stopped public activities, which ones didn't. There was clearly uh, issues with with um, the way the press handled this. That's why it's called the Spanish influenza because there were censorship laws. You couldn't write about it in other countries. So there were a, there was a lot of discussion about it, but, uh, but I, I think it wasn't a time when people really wanted to reflect on that. And I do think it sort of was something that got forgotten. I think there are, there are books that, that, that are titled that, The Forgotten Pandemic, even though now it seems completely uh, incredible that someone would forget that. But I think people moved, moved on that way. And there wasn't just this idea that government that this was a government failure and maybe it wasn't then because we didn't have any tools or technology at our hand at that time and this was coming off the heels of world war one which actually probably drove some of the spread but i don't think that there was that same idea that we needed to do an after action report at that time even though it was such a disastrous calamity because there weren't really many solutions from a medical scientific standpoint at that that time and the political split in the country and media uh, was far more tepid than 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 it is now, and certainly uh, the the politicalization of this uh, was nowhere near uh, that in uh, 1918 and 20. People were getting ready to party in the uh, in the in the 1920s. I'm Bruce Dumont. One last segment coming up on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks for joining us tonight. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry. We're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone, you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man. 
You, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. We are back, and uh, Dr. Aljalja, uh, let me begin this uh, with you. Um, in the beginning of this epidemic, there was a lot to be said that so much in our uh, needed stockpile, whether it was masks or respirators uh, or even certain you know, treatments, uh, were being held up because they were coming through a Chinese manufacturer. Has our reliance on Chinese products been reduced to any significant level in the last two years? It depends upon what product you're looking at. It's clear that we have a global pipeline for many products that are going to be essential during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And this is something we've recognized for some time when it comes to pandemic resiliency, that we, can't, we have to have diversification of suppliers because if you've got a worldwide pandemic, you're going to have multiple countries needing the same supplies. And if you only have one supplier or if all your supplies come back to one ingredient that's in one place, that's going to decrease your resiliency. So there has been an effort to have more domestic production, more domestic suppliers, as well as have more diversified international suppliers so we don't run into this issue again. But it is clearly something that's been recognized, but it's very hard to do because we do have a global pipeline and, and some, some things are going to be made outside of this country. So I think that the goal here is not necessarily to specifically look at one country being the problem here, but to diversify our supply and to have domestic sources of production as well when it makes sense. And uh, is, uh, if we were to look at China, uh, has China done much, uh, Dr. Tremita, to, uh, to contribute to the manufacture of vac vaccines, vaccines and the sharing of vaccines with the rest of the world, or have they been pretty much uh, an island by themselves? China's done really well with their vaccine efforts in general. They're very highly vaccinated in China right now. I'd, I'd have to defer to Dr. Adalja. He'd probably have a little more expertise on the area of if or if not they are distributing their vaccines beyond their borders. Um, but at this moment, I, I think that um, uh, right now China is up there with uh, being one of the more highly vaccinated populations. Dr. Adalja? So China has been distributing their vaccine outside their borders. They've, they've been engaging in a lot of global vaccine diplomacy and giving their vaccine to many countries around the world. Sometimes it comes with strings. Uh, some of those strings are very bad. For example, derecognizing Taiwan, which is, uh, I think, a bad thing for, for, for the Chinese government to condition their uh, donations of vaccines for. But they have been donating their vaccine uh, to many countries. And their vaccine is something that's listed as a WHO emergency vaccine. There are some questions about how efficacious it is compared to some of the other vaccines out there. But at least it seems when it comes to serious disease, hospitalization, and death, what really matters, uh, the Chinese vaccines are, are holding 
building up uh, in that regard. President Biden said uh, this past week in a press conference that the United States has provided more vaccines to the world than all other nations combined and stated that Americans will be first in line. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? And if so, do you agree with his decision that uh, America has a greater responsibility to deal domestically with its uh, stockpile of vaccines or should they be shared with uh, the countries of the world that are in far dire straits than we are? Dr. Adalja. It, it is true that the United States it is true that the United States has been donating vaccines to other countries, and I think that that's going to be important because if the pandemic is raging out of control in one part of the world, the rest of the world is not going to be safe. It's going to be a place where new variants emerge. So I think that's going to be really key in this next phase of the pandemic. I do think that countries are going to have a general preference, obviously, for their domestic the, the, the domestic population to getting them vaccinated. Where I differ with President Biden is on this idea of giving boosters to healthy people. I, I don't see the, the strong value of that at the eight-month interval. I think there may be a time down down the road where this might be necessary, but at eight months, I don't think that we're seeing any erosion, especially when it comes to what matters, serious disease, hospitalization, and death. And I do think if you think about giving third doses to healthy people, it's not going to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the world. And it's definitely not going to change the trajectory of the pandemic in the United States, where we're still struggling to get first and second doses into people in, in Mississippi and Florida and Louisiana and, and Arkansas states like that. I think that's uh, what we really need to focus on. And uh, some would argue that that's a great political thing to play is that you know, you're the one that's giving them a third booster shot or a booster shot. Uh, Dr. Tormita, your response to the same question? So I do agree with what Dr. Adelja is saying to that score. I, I did not think that for most of us we would be seeing the concept of a booster shot before the year mark, and eight months is a little bit soon. I, I do see breakthrough cases in the elderly and immunocompromised, so I think there is room to discuss giving a third dose to select individuals. But as Dr. Adelja was saying, for most healthy folks, we may not need these booster shots. And for healthy folks that do get a booster shot at the eight-month mark, they might not need another booster shot. Who knows for how long? It might not be something that is needed annually or biannually in the future. So, so I, you don't think that's likely? that there would be an annual booster shot. I think that for some individuals who are immune suppressed, elderly, and have significant comorbidities, I think there could be room for potential booster shots uh, necessary for those folks, but not for the average healthy person. I don't know that we're gonna need booster shots for all. We have less than a minute left. So Dr. Adilja, let me go to you. Give me a 30 second summary of what's the most important thing you want people to remember from your commentary tonight. The most important thing to remember is that we live on a planet that teems with microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi, and we are always going to be facing infectious disease emergencies. What we need to do is take a proactive approach to this, to think about this as an important priority to keep ourselves resilient. And I think this pandemic has touched everyone's lives. It's disrupted everyone's lives. It's killed over 600,000 Americans, destroyed trillions of dollars of wealth. And I think we have to hold our government accountable that they need to get this right because this pandemic's severity was a direct result of failures at the federal, state, local, and even school district level. We've got to get them to think about being 
as I keep saying, proactive in, in really investing in public health, investing in countermeasures so that this never happens again, because we can't afford to have it happen again with a more dangerous virus. 30 seconds to you. On a local and immediate uh, response, these vaccines are safe and effective. For all your listeners right now who may have been on the fence, 96% of all physicians in America are fully vaccinated. We are absolutely standing by what I believe is probably one of the biggest public health advantages that we've had the use of vaccine please go out and get your vaccines keep your family and loved ones safe and on that note i will volunteer that i have been vaccinated i've got my vax card with me all time our thanks uh, this evening uh, to frankie rodriguez for his assistance in the production of this program again we will be back next week thanks for joining us good night from elk grove village illinois One forty five over ninety two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty two over a hundred. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council.